Tonight at Ground Zero Meetings, we're going to continue um, our Bible series of going through the Bible, and, and tonight's message is on Lamentations. Um, it's a, a it's really a continuation of Jeremiah's book. You know, it's it's written after uh, you know Babylon seized the city, basically destroyed Jerusalem, and Lamentations is basically you know, it's lamenting, it's crying out, it's grieving, it's you're in sorrow, you're in pain, you know, and he's writing some poems to kind of express the, the brokenness that's going on in him. So he's reflecting on what has taken place in, in his hometown, you know, and what has happened to Jerusalem, what has happened to the Israelite nation, what's happening to, you know, the hopes and the dreams of the people that live there, you know, and, um, you know, there's been quite the destruction and the, and the exile of his people. You know, he prophesied over and over again in the book of Jeremiah, you know, that they should repent and they should stop worshiping idols and they should stop having injustices and taking advantage of the poor and the widows and the refugees that would come into the city, that they had high taxes and they were, you know, unfair and they were doing all these things against, you know, God's people. You know, so there was a lot, there was warning, there was a prophetic message for repentance and a, a prophetic warning of what was going to happen if they didn't. You know, and he prophesied that there was going to be this massive army that came from the north and completely seized Jerusalem. But they did not believe that that could happen because they, they believed that they were untouchable because of you know, they were God's chosen people, so they felt that they could live however they wanted to live, you know, and because they lived in Jerusalem and it was a walled city that, you know, there was no army that could penetrate, you know, their city, and eventually Babylon came in and brought on a siege, and a siege is basically they just camped outside the city, you couldn't leave, and eventually you run out of food, and everybody begins to starve. You know, a lot of times they would poison your water. You know, if there was cricks and streams that would come through, they would throw dead animals in them. So it would pollute the water so that you wouldn't have any clean water to drink. And that would bring disease within the city. You know, they wouldn't have food. And then the city would basically be corrupted from the inside out. And eventually, you know, they would give up or all die off or they wouldn't have the defenses. And eventually they'd just come over the wall. You know, and this is referring to the passage in Kings, you know, and Chronicles, because it's interesting. I've never really understood it or saw it this way before as I've read through the Bible, but it keeps jumping back and forth. You know, as you read through the Bible, you know, from the beginning to the end, you know, that, you know, first and second Chronicles is kind of the end of the Old Testament, but yet, you know, that was kind of dead set in the middle you know, and there's all these things that are going on. So, you know, as we go through these prophets, you know, a lot of these prophets are, are at the same time frame, just in different parts of, you know, Israel. You know, so they're in a different city or they're in a different town or they're in either Judah or Israel. They're in the north or in the south and they're prophesying to the kings. They're prophesying to the priests because it's basically corrupted to the core. They're worshiping idols. They're doing all this stuff against God, you know. They're having all sorts of crude and sexual acts and, and calling it worship to God because they're they're worshiping like the Canaanites. They're worshiping 
like the other tribes that have been around them that God told them to get rid of and not participate in their types of worship. You know, so, <clears throat> you know, this was the most crazy, horrendous thing that they've ever experienced. You know, although many, many generations, many, many hundreds of years before God did this to Egypt, you know, and he brought destruction and chaos into Egypt, but he'd never done that to them. You know, and even though, you know, there's all these stories through the judges and through some of those stories, you know, you see the, the rise and fall of the nation, but they'd never been completely wiped out the way that God wiped them out this time. You know, so, you know, they, it would be similar, you know, I was thinking about this, it would be similar for us to be sitting back and watching New York City get destroyed completely wiped out, and then all the people that are in New York City, like, marched off to Canada. Like, Canada just come down and said, you know, New York City, you've had too much sin, we're destroying you, and we just watch how, you know, the destruction of New York City and everything that happens, and then all the people get marched to Canada to serve them and worship the Canadian gods. You know, it's the best illustration that I can give you, because, like, we're, it's not familiar to us. You know, we don't have a reference like, oh yeah, Jerusalem died. You know, like, no, it would be seriously like New York City got wiped out and then all those people got marched with hooks in their noses, like fish hooks. Boom, you're, you're coming with us. They're bound and they have hooks in their nose so they can't even try to escape. You know, and, you know, they had these crude practices. Like when they would come in, they would slaughter people and all these crazy ways they would have contests like let's let's play the game of who can collect the most arms and the babylonians would come in and just you know basically cut off everybody's arms and there would be piles of arms and dead people so that when people after babylon left the city and the people in the, in the surrounding villages and the surrounding cities would come in and see the wreckage they would see the crazy carnage that they would leave behind so they would never contest what Babylon would do. So there's this rumor that they are these awful, awful people and they will do these awful, awful things. You know, and yet Jerusalem believed that God was going to set them free, but also the people did not repent of their sins. And therefore, God wasn't obligated to come to rescue them. So Jerusalem basically got destroyed after like 500, 500 years that Babylon came in and just kept completely destroyed the entire city. So this book is kind of a memorial in the cries of the people to what took place. You know, so these poems, these laments, you know, are not the only ones in the Bible. You see some in Job, you see some in Psalms and also Isaiah. You know, there's lamenting going on. So lamenting is also this form of a protest. You know, it's, it's a cry out to God for things to change. You know, it's a, it's waiting on God. It's believing in God in such a way that He's hearing your cries. Yet, that these types of events shouldn't be tolerated. You know, that, that this type of destruction that shouldn't take place. You know, it's a way of processing emotion. You know, as, you know, as a man, in this century that we're told not to cry. 
you know, I remember from a little kid, quit your belly aching, or I'll give you something to cry about, you know, and yelled at and screamed at, and I'm crying and I'm getting hit for crying, and I'm crying more, and I'm getting hit for crying. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Isn't this the way that most of us grew up? You know, so as a very young age, lamenting was punished. You know, and that's not true. It's not biblically true. And, you know, in a lot of things today in our society, we suppress and we bury everything. We bury all the pain, every event that we've been through. We don't talk about it. We don't talk to God about it. We don't talk to other people about it. And then we get a bunch of medication to make it go away. And for me, this is my story, that it didn't work. You know, it didn't work. Drugs and alcohol didn't work. And, and taking vast amounts of crazy pills didn't work for me. However, I will say this. In that season of my life with no Jesus, they kept me alive. If I did not have the medication that I was on in that season of my life, I would have committed suicide. I have no doubt in it. But once I had Jesus, and I began to bring all my pain to him, that healing began to take place. Now, I am not disregarding mental illness, because it's a thing. It's true. However, I believe that God is a healer. And I believe if I bring my stuff to him, that the very reasons that I need drugs and alcohol or medications begin to be uplifted and healed and changed. And may some things go and may some things not go. You know, I'm not by any means telling anyone to get off their medication. But I am saying that as I process my emotion, as I bring him my pain, as I lament, as I, as I cry, is that I let the pain out for the first time. Healing begins to occur. As I repent of my sin, healing begins to occur. Why? Because all the time I've been stuffing it and trying to use all these different things, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex and porn and food and people and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, careers, workaholism. There's a million different things that we've used throughout the year to keep the pain down. You know, and we think that this next thing is going to help us just cope with the pain and just keep it moving. But at some point, we have to stop, repent of our sins, talk to God about the way our heart is really feeling, and let Him into the deepest, darkest corners and saying, God, I can't live this way anymore. And I know for me, that brought a lot of tears. And I think that if anyone's getting honest with Jesus about their lives, they too will cry. And I'm saying that that's a great thing. I think that we should cry over our decisions and our sin and our, our brokenness and the things that have happened in our lives. I think that we should let this pain out and, and ask God to come in and, and bring healing. You know, so these lament poems are for a way for the, the, that nation to begin to cry out to God and allow healing to occur. You know, it's a way to voice confusion. Like, we don't always understand why we go through what we go through. You know, however, we can call on God, call on His character, call on His promises, and watch what He's going to begin to do. You know, lamenting or, or confessing or, or talking to God or writing things out. Some of you are writers. You like to write out things. You know, some of us aren't writers. I'm not a writer. But I will talk to God a lot. 
you know, that we have to get these things out. You know, I remember so often that I would put music in my ears, worship going on in my ears, and I would go for a walk, and I'm crying, walking through Utica. You know, I'm like, I just can't imagine the people that saw me and be like, oh my God, this person's crazy. (laughs) They say that now, but anyway, I mean... So one minute I'm walking, I'm praying, I'm crying, I'm speaking in tongues, I'm walking through Utica, I got music on, and there's tears just running down my face. I'm just, you know, going for a walk, talking to God, lamenting, saying, God, I can't live this way anymore. God, I need you to heal my mind. God, I need you to take my depression. God, I need you to take my addiction. God, I need you to take my anxiety. God, I need you to take this perversion. God, I need you in this situation and I can't live this way anymore and I can't do it my way anymore and I can't do it. I can't. I can't. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I'm broken. I need you, Jesus, in my life because I can't stand the way I feel. I don't like the man that I see in the mirror. I hate myself. And I would cry because I did not know how to change myself. And I've tried so hard for so many years at that point, nearly a decade of in and out of recovery, in and out of jail, trying to change this thing and trying to change that thing, but yet finding myself back in the midst of the craziness and in the midst of the brokenness and coming before God and saying, God, I can't do this. I hate everything. Something's got to change. And asking Him in, to these broken areas of our lives. You know, there's an... These poems were designed in an intentional way. We don't see it in the English version because they're built off the Hebrew alphabet that each verse in these poems is a, is a letter in the, in the alphabet. So it's almost like we would say it's an acrostic through the alphabet. You know, so for us it would be A... B, C, D, and so on, but they only have 22 letters to their alphabet. So in the first two books, you know, first two poems, first two chapters of Lamentation, that that's designed that way to take you through, you know, the poem structure and show you, you know, even though there's there's pain and confusion and grief and destruction, there's still some structure, you know. So, you know, as we go into chapter 1, it focuses on the shame and the grief of Lady Zion. It's, it's referencing, you know, Jerusalem to this widow, to this broken woman that's, that's crying out for God for help. You know, the city's destruction has brought on this psychological, you know, trauma to the Israelites. You know, because some of them got left behind. You know, some of them got taken on to Babylon. You know, some of them were in captivity. Some of them became slaves. But some of them got left there, even though the temple had been destroyed, the city had been destroyed, everything that could get burned was burned. You know, so, you know, here's this widow crying out for her family that's been destroyed. You know, it's similar to like a funeral song. You know, that they would play songs and, 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 and weep at people's funerals. So as we go into to chapter two, you know, it, it focuses on the fact that this is consequences of our actions. This is the consequence of our sin, you know, which brought on God's wrath, you know. And see, you know, so many of us think that that God is unjust in his wrath, you know, 
when you talk to unbelievers, they don't understand why God would do what God has done as you read through certain scriptures. You know, however, you know, if you have naughty little children and you've told them the same thing for 500 days, let's say one day is a year. If you said the same thing for 500 days and you knew that they understood you and did this, the opposite anyway, would you not spank that child? You know, and, you know, we think that that's, you know, cruel or unjust, but, you know, God is trying to bring correction and bring justice in a place that there is an, you know, an injustice. You know, the priests were worshiping God and bringing temple prostitutes and having sex in the temple and, and worshiping other gods, worshiping the God of Baal, which is basically a demonic God that they would have child sacrifices right in God's temple. And God was like, you can't do that. And he kept warning them and warning them and warning them. And eventually God said, I will destroy this temple before I let you do that anymore. You know, and we have to understand that that sometimes God brings a spanking. And we don't like that aspect of God, but without that, there is no real love. You know, we, you know, love our children and there has to be some discipline. You know, now this is the same in a context, you know, that God is bringing discipline. You know, and we think that it's extreme, but what if you went home tonight and there was somebody in your living room killing babies? Like literally slaughtering children in your living room. What would that do inside of you? What if that was your child that got chosen to be sacrificed? And you went home and your child was being murdered in your living room as you watched. And they said it was forgotten. What would that do in your heart? What would that do inside of you? What if somebody took your sister or your mother and would rape them in your house and call it worship to God? What would you do? See, we don't look at it that way, right? But that's literally what's going on. They built that temple to God. It's God's house, God's presence. God's laws, God's priests, and then all this corrupted sin started to take place inside of that. And God allowed it for years, centuries. He kept saying no, and it would ebb and flow, ebb and flow, between really, really sick and starting to get better, doing pretty good, really, really sick, start to get better, really, really sick, starting to do pretty good. And at this point, it was like, you guys are not turning. You know, you, you killed Isaiah. You sawed him in half. I sent Jeremiah. You're not listening to him. You threw him in prison. Like over and over again, God's trying to bring mercy and grace into the situation, but they're not listening. And it's bringing chaos and brokenness, and, and it's just continuing to perpetuate into the next generation. And, and more people are being hurt, and there's more injustice and more crime and more stealing and more rape and more death. For God, God said, we've got to start this thing over. Our people have corrupted it. And it's so important that we see it more clearly that 
in God's love, he's trying to help the next generation not be consumed by this false worship. You know, in in chapter 3, it breaks the pattern. It starts to add three verses per letter. So now there's 66 verses in chapter 3. There's 66 verses in the Bible. You know, kind of interesting to me. But then it, you know, it's, it's following the same style of pattern where it's, you know, A for three verses, B for three verses, and so on. But there's this, there's this thing that's starting to stir. That the poem is written from the, the stance of a lonely man, and he's speaking out of his grief, and he's lamenting, he, he's crying, you know, and he's, he's asking for God to, to move. And hope is beginning to stir in the poetry because he's believing that if God has been just in bringing this punishment, he'll also stick to his word that he's gracious and merciful and he's a restorer and he would rebuild. And all of a sudden, the message begins to turn, crying out God and calling on God's character calling on the covenant of his faithfulness that he would bring these mercies mercies that <clears throat> how great and how faithful he is you know and <clears throat> as he's calling on God's word and speaking his promises over the situation and this is very similar to what we need to do that whatever we're going through we need to find scripture and begin to say this is my this is my weapon you know, God, you're a restorer. God, you're a healer. God, you're a provider. You know, and we begin to proclaim these scriptures, these God's promises over our lives. Now, it's God's will. You know, so we have to, to abide by his word, but we need to speak his word in hope that his word is true, that he will begin to move in our situation. You know, that it goes on to say that you are my inheritance, that I put all my hope in you. You know, in that if he is faithful to his word to bring justice, that this poet is reasoning that he's also faithful to his word, that he will be a restorer to his people, and that he cannot break his promises. That if he won't let evil prevail, that he won't let his word fall to the wayside either. So it's important that we believe what the Bible is telling us and that we begin to proclaim it over our own situations, over our own lives. You know, so often we own them, but we don't read them. You know, many of us own several Bibles. You know, and in China, they would love to have a page of it. Someone will smuggle a Bible into an area and they literally will rip it out page by page and start handing it out to all the different people. And say, you hang on to this page and read it and study it, and I'll hang on to this page and read it and study it, and you hang on to this page and read it and study it, and we'll swap later once we know everything that's on the page. So entire villages will get a Bible, but they'll, they'll spread it around so everybody gets a little piece to read. And they cherish that page. And yet we have full Bibles, and we don't pay it as much attention. It's like, yeah, I go to church, I, you know. You know, I believe in God. You know, I know I need to read, but I don't. That when the persecution starts to take place, when craziness starts to take place, don't our prayers change? 
So sometimes trials begin to happen in our lives because God's like turning up the heat a little bit to get our attention. You know, that I don't believe that all the trials that we go through are God's punishment. I think life is life. I think that sin happens in my life and in your life. And when you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and sinners collide, sin happens. You know, and, and trials happen and craziness happens. You know, I don't handle every situation perfectly. I don't think you do either. There's times I'm driving and I'm like, eh, I want to kill people. I wish I had a battering ram on the front of my truck in the name of Jesus. I'm just talking about me. Those people that get on the highway and go the same speed and you can't pass them. Those people need Jesus. And I want to help them meet him right now. I don't know what it is. I'm like, it's basic driving. And the longer they stay in that pattern, the more I want to do bad things. That's just me. I'm a perfect Christian, not. Like we all think and say things on a regular basis that are contrary. Like, you're a Christian? Like, yeah, most of the time. Like, you know... So it's important that we're real, I think. I think that being transparent is a very important piece to this puzzle. But I also think that it's important that we get honest with ourselves and say, God's been talking to me about this area a lot, and I need to change it. And when we don't change it, and consequences come to our actions, that we we should be honest with ourselves and saying. God just spanked me, and I deserve it. You know, I think as I look back over my life, in my addiction, and even before I even really became a hardcore addict, I see God's hand trying to turn me, trying to change me, trying to give me consequences to my actions, trying to, to, to steer me away from the painful life that I was living. You know, and eventually I went to jail. And I deserved to go to jail. But while I was in jail, I did not think I deserved to go to jail. And I needed to get out as fast as possible. I shouldn't be in a place like this. I absolutely deserved to be in a place like that. And I got out and did the same things and I went back. And I got out and did the same things and I went back. And I got out and did the same things and went back. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a pattern here. You know, and eventually I sat there long enough and said, you know what? I don't want to keep living this way. I don't want to keep doing this. What's the reason I keep doing this? Mom and dad? No. Mom and dad didn't have nothing to do with why I'm wearing an orange jumpsuit at this time. You know, and eventually we get to an age, you know, the Bible talks about an age of accountability that we realize that a lot of our problems are our own making. You know, we can blame mom and dad for so long, but eventually we come to the realization that the worst person in my life is me. I've caused more problems and more craziness and more pain in my life than anybody else, all of them added together, and then add ten. I am the one that has destroyed my life. I have no one else to blame. 
And that's when we finally can come to a Savior and repent and ask for Him to heal and change, restore, transform. Until then, we're still trying to use God to get our own will accomplished. It's, it's fitting for me to have a little bit of God in my life. I believe, but yet I don't let it change my behaviors. And then wonder why consequences are still coming. So it's so important for us to realize that we need to change these areas so that God can restore us. See, today I look at it a lot differently. You know, God's judgment in my life brought me to painful situations where I eventually repented and turned and looked for Jesus. You know, and I found Jesus. So these painful areas in my life became the the seedbed where the hope of my future was started to be rooted in and change. You know, that the things that we've been through, the painful things that we've been through, when we give those things to Jesus, whether they're our fault or someone else's fault, it doesn't matter, really, that I need to forgive them and I need to forgive myself and I need to believe that God's going to forgive me and God will forgive them if they ask for forgiveness. So out of that pain births our testimony, births the victory of Christ, births this hope that He not only can change me, but He can change everything around me. You know, and it's so important that we see the hope for our future when we walk with Christ. You know, chapter 4 goes back to the alphabet structure into 22 verses. But it brings this contrast. You know, as they went through the siege, it was about two years that Babylon surrounded the city. You know, and it and it it shows the, the before and after. The, the children used to laugh and play, and now they beg for food. You know, the wealthy used to have these lavish dinners, and now they eat whatever they can find in the dirt. The royalty... You know, the royal leaders used to be filled with splendor, and now they're famished and dirty and unrecognizable. And our anointed king, the line of David, has been captured and dragged away. You know, and this to me is similar that when we start bringing our pain to Jesus, it flip-flops. That it, I used to be, you know, this way, and now God's doing this. You know, I used to struggle with addiction, and now God has brought me freedom. I used to be angry, and now God's giving me grace. I used to be this way, and now God. You know, and it's it's a flip-flop. When we add Jesus to our lives, there should be what it was like, what happened with Jesus, and then there are things that should begin to change. You know, that we can start to share our testimony that things are moving. Now, none of us are exactly where we want to be in our lives. We have not arrived. However, I think that I can easily say that every single one of us is farther down the path than we once were, and we can find gratitude that God has done what he's already done. The fact that we're sitting here tonight compared to where we were six weeks ago, six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, and so on. You know, for me, I always use certain check marks throughout the year to show what God is doing. You know, and holidays are one of those things for me. Where were you last Thanksgiving, Tom? You know, what was going on? You know, and it helps me to see how God continues to move in my life. <clears throat> You know, so this final poem in chapter five, you know, it's it's unique. It breaks the pattern. You know, it's the same length of 22 verses, but the alphabet the alphabet structure is gone. It's like Jeremiah can't hold in his grief anymore 
and that it everything is exploded into chaos. You know, the, but the poem is really a prayer for God's mercy. He's begging God into the situation not to ignore their suffering. Don't abandon us. You know, he's begging God to, to free them, free his people. You know, he's voicing his pain. You know, I think that it's very important that in our prayer time that we should be talking to God about what we're going through. Talking to God about your marriages. Talking about God about your children. Talking to God about your relationships with your siblings or your parents. Talking to God about your finances. Talking to God about your pain. You know, the things that have happened to me. You know, I was abused as a kid. You know, I was physically, sexually abused as a kid. I need to bring that stuff to God. You know, you know this trauma and that trauma. The, the, the brokenness, the desolation that's going on inside of us. We need to say, God, I don't know where else to turn, but I can turn to you. You know, and as we learn to, to turn to him in those situations, we begin to find healing. We begin to find hope. He begins to restore. He begins to change. He begins to mend. You know, and it's so important that we vent to him. So often we get depressed and we don't talk to anybody, right? You know, we, we lay around and, and we, we isolate and we sleep and we, we eat too much and we watch too many TVs and we Netflix and binge and, and I understand that because I was there. However, we need to bring God into that equation, you know, and say, God, I can't do this. You know, isolating is the greatest place to ask God into your situation. You know, go get around people when you're depressed. I will murder everyone. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So like that suggestion is not like a real thing because I will hurt people. However, I can ask God into my my situation. I can I spend time in my word. I can watch Christian movies. I can do research. I can do this. I can do that. I can play music. I can ask him into my area of brokenness and pain and saying, God, this has to change. This has to change. You know, it's important that we're venting. It's important that we're lamenting. It's important that we're talking to him about what's going on in our minds. You know, whether we're depressed or anxious, angry, lustful, fearful, insecure, scared, whatever. You know, it's saying, God, these thoughts are overwhelming. Will you come into my mind? Will you heal my mind? Will you give me hope? Will you heal my heart? Will you heal my brokenness? Will you heal? Will you change? These are so important. You know, Lamentations kind of ends with Jeremiah acknowledging that God is our internal king. He's the king of the world. He's the king of every circumstance. He's the Lord over everything. But there's times that it feels like God is nowhere to be found. Right? You know, and it's so important that we get into our word and we know what his word says because our feelings become very overwhelming at times. You know, if you've been around me long enough, you hear it pretty often. But I picked it up out of AA and our feelings aren't facts. And when we're having an emotional moment, you love hearing that statement. I know it. Just like I did way back then. My feelings aren't facts. I'm going to punch you in the face. If you say that one more time, I might just strangle you. And it won't be out of emotion, I promise. You know, it's important that we, we find things, little tidbits that help us through emotional moments. You know, that feelings aren't facts, things, that emotions lie. I've probably said to myself millions of times. 
Millions. I'm not even joking. There's days that I had to say it over and over and over and over and over hundreds, if not thousands of times in one day. Because my emotions were crazy. My brain was telling me to run. My brain is telling me to do things that I don't want to do. And I'm just saying, no, this isn't true. God, I believe you. I believe your path for my life. I know that sobriety is better. I know that you're real. You know, and I begin to, prof- you know, profess that into my life. I, I proclaim that. I'm confessing that God is good. That I would say over and over, over and over and over again, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. And there's always tears running down my cheeks because everything that's going on inside of me is not trust in Jesus. My circumstances and my surroundings are far louder than that still small voice. And it's like, God, where are you in this situation? You could, you know, my little thing is like, you could wave your little pinky at this. And I would get so mad because inside I was so scared and I just wanted to run away. And I would say, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. And I would allow him to tell me to sit still. My feelings are going crazy. God doesn't seem like he's anywhere to be found. It doesn't seem like he's listening to me at all, but he's right there. And we have to to overcome those sensations, those emotions, those thoughts. You know, this book shows us that lamenting out of grief, out of pain, out of depression, and beginning to pray and speak God's promises and God's word and declaring what God has for us begins to change our situations. We're all going to go through difficult times. Just because we have Jesus, just because we're sober, just because we're working on a sin area, just because we're getting some of these things back, does not mean that you're not going to have some roller coaster moments. It does not mean that you're not going to have some down days, down weeks, a down month. But as we begin to say, God, I don't know why, but here we go, and I'm going to trust you. You know, we begin to watch him walk us through things in a way that we wouldn't do. Like, that's not how I would do that, God. And he's like, yeah, I know. That's why my way works and your way doesn't. Like, you know, like, I don't know about you, but I get frustrated sometimes because I'm like, this is the way we should do it. And he's like, no, I'll do it that way. And I'm like, ah. But I have to learn to trust him. His ways are not our ways. You know, we think, you know, hurting people that have hurt us makes way more sense than forgiving them. Right? But forgiving them brings us peace. We're hanging on to that vengeance and that bitterness does not hurt them. It hurts us. God's ways are not our ways. So it's so important that we begin to speak this stuff over our lives. You know, if you're going through something difficult right now, it's normal. I'm not saying it's awesome. I'm saying it's normal. But what I'm also saying, God is still good. It does not matter what you're going through. God is good. And when we begin to hang on to God's faithfulness, and we begin to profess God's promises, and we begin to cry out of the bitterness of our soul, and we begin to to get real with what's going on in our heart, and we begin to speak His Word over the thoughts that we have, things begin to shift, things begin to change, things begin to heal. And it's so important that we realize that It's okay to have a down whatever. 
you know, grieving is one of these things that if you've lost a loved one, you know, there's going to be good days, there's going to be bad days, but you're going to have seasons of where this is difficult. You know, if you're, you know, separated from someone that you love, you can have days that you're doing good and you have other days where it's like, I'm so pissed off, I want to kill everyone. But really what's happening inside of you is you're scared. You know, when depression tries to creep in, and it's so important that we proclaim God's promises over our lives. Would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, I just ask that you would move move in all of our situations, Lord. There's many different people here. There's many different things going on. Lord, some of us are getting victories in areas that we have been faithful. And God, you, you've been showing up in our lives and helping us to, to even get a couple days together where we're finally doing the right thing. That most of us in this room have had many, many years of very broken times. Long stretches of depression. Long stretches of anxiety and fear. Lord, and I begin to speak your promises over us right now that you are faithful and that you are good and that your mercies are new every morning and that you will give us the grace that gives us the strength to change, that you are sufficient, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper, that we have the ability to pull down strongholds and that we can come against and oppose anything that is against your word and we can hold these thoughts captive and we can resist the enemy and submit to you and that the enemy will flee out of our lives and that you're a healing God and you're a transforming God and you're a restoring God. And I pray that stuff in each and every one of our situations, whether it's a relationship with your mom or it's a relationship with your wife or it's relationships with your kids. You've got court stuff hanging over your head. You have money stuff hanging over your head. You have a sin area that you can't seem to get free of. I proclaim right now that as we begin to speak God's promises and speak God's word into our lives, we, be, we will begin to see things shift. Help us, Lord, to first come before you and, and ask for your forgiveness of the areas that we're still struggling in, that you've spoken to us over and over again, that, that it's time to change these things. Lord, help us to trust that your ways are better than our own. Lord, and I pray that your presence begins to move into our situations, especially our mind and our hearts, Lord, and help us to be the men and women that you're calling us to be. Lord, that we no longer... Live the way we once lived, Lord, that you are moving in our lives, that you're showing us that you're more real than we've ever expected, Lord, that there's something so much more about a relationship with Jesus than just going to church and saying that I'm a Christian. So, Lord, help us to know that you are with us in the darkest of places. You are with us in the the most painful of places, Lord, that you are a healer, that you are a God who restores and transforms. I just thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.